Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Jew Podcast, where we dive deep into Torah and Judaism to uncover its hidden beauty. Come join us as we take a closer look and breathe new life into traditional Jewish ideas. And now, here's your host, Rabbi Moshe Siegel. Hello, and welcome to episode 48 I want to dedicate this episode in honor of my good friend Scott Friedman on his upcoming wedding next week. May the Torah learn from this podcast serve as a merit for you and Michelle to build a beautiful Jewish home, a bias Naaman be Yisrael. So I thought it would be an appropriate topic to discuss the basic process and understanding of a traditional Jewish wedding. There are many different aspects to a wedding from the emotional, the legal, contractual, as well as the spiritual. The varying parts of the wedding reflect one or often multiple of these different elements. So let's begin. When you first enter the wedding hall, you'll find what's called the Kabbalah's Panim, which literally means the receiving of the faces, referring to the bride and groom's separate receptions, welcoming all the guests to the wedding. The general setup is the bride will be in one room, sitting on an elegant chair, and the groom in a different room. In Judaism, we view the bride and groom on their wedding day like a king and a queen, and the bride's chair that she sits on is likened to a throne. The reason that they're in two separate rooms rather than having one larger reception is because the bride and groom are not really supposed to see each other until the next step of the wedding process that we'll discuss shortly. Many even have the custom that the bride and groom don't see each other for a complete week leading up to the wedding. At the groom's reception, often called the chassan's tish, which means the groom's table, the officiating rabbi will finalize and fill out the ksuba. The ksuba is a marriage contract in which the husband obligates himself to take care of his wife, specifically in providing her with food, clothing, and affection. And the final details are filled in here at this part of the process. The ksuba is then signed by two kosher witnesses and placed aside until later in the ceremony. This reception is often filled with food and l'chaims and joyous singing. After everything is filled out, the groom, surrounded on both sides, generally by his father and future father-in-law, is danced with singing and music towards the bride's reception. And this is called the badekin. When the groom arrives, he walks towards the bride and covers her face with a veil. This is reminiscent of the verse in Genesis chapter 24, verse 65, in which Rebecca, when she arrives to marry Isaac, she covers her face with a veil. It's also an expression that the husband's recognizing that he's marrying the bride not for her outward appearance, but rather for her inner beauty. Once her face is covered, it's customary for the groom or his parents or the bride's parents or one of the grandparents or any of those that want to give a blessing to the bride. Now is a time that's customary to do that. The bride's face then generally remains covered until the chuppah ceremony. After this part is over, everyone basically goes to the chuppah room, finds a seat there, preparing for the actual marriage ceremony. The bride and groom go to their own spaces now as they themselves get ready to prepare to walk down the aisle as well. The chuppah itself is basically a canopy supported by four poles, open on all four sides, like the tent of Abraham and Sarah, that was open on four sides, welcoming in guests and always looking to help other people. In addition to being likened to the tent of Abraham, the Zohar compares the poles of the chuppah and the cloth draped over it 
to the poles holding up the tabernacle, the mishkan, and the cloth draped over that. And Kabbalah teaches us that just like the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, filled the tabernacle, the Shekhinah comes down and fills the chuppah as well. And the Zohar adds that when the Divine Presence comes down from heaven to the chuppah, God first stops in Gan Eden and picks up the souls of any of the parents of the bride and groom that are no longer alive, and He brings them with to celebrate the chuppah of their children. And in a book called Sefer Hamin Hagim, which documents the various customs of Chabad, he actually writes there that God brings the souls of the past three generations to join in the celebration of their descendants. And since we find the chuppah compared to the tent of our forefather Abraham, as well as the Mishka and the tabernacle, with Hashem's presence there, it's considered a very opportune moment for prayer specifically for the bride and groom, but really for everyone in attendance as well. So coming back to the marriage process itself, once everybody is seated in the chuppah room, the actual procession begins. Often in the procession, we'll also have grandparents and siblings that walk down. There's nothing wrong with that, although that's not necessary from a Jewish perspective. All that's necessary from a Jewish perspective is that the bride and groom walk down the aisle. The groom will walk down the aisle before the bride, And as we mentioned, the bride and groom are compared to a king and queen. And like by most prestigious people, they never walk alone. They're always accompanied by an entourage. So in general, two people, one on each side, will walk down with the bride and the groom. Often this is their parents. And the custom is that whoever is walking down beside them holds candles as they walk down, which represents light and joy as well as it symbolizes the fire that was present at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai being the wedding between the Jews and God. After the groom arrives at the chuppah, there's a song that's sing as he awaits the arrival of his bride. The bride then walks down with her parents, and right before she arrives at the chuppah, many have a custom that the groom actually takes a few steps down from the chuppah to meet her, and they walk into the chuppah together. This represents the bride's new beginning of leaving her parents' house and entering into this new home represented by the chuppah along with her husband. After they enter the chuppah, in Ashkenazi custom, the bride circles around the groom seven times. Some suggest the source of this custom corresponds to the seven days of creation, symbolizing that they're now creating a new world together. Others suggest it corresponds to the seven circles the Jews marched around the city of Jericho in the book of Joshua, after which all of the walls of the city came tumbling down. So too the bride circling seven times around the groom symbolizes that all the walls have fallen down. There are no longer any barriers between the bride and groom as they're completely open and connected to each other as they begin this new chapter of life together. After this, the actual marriage process begins. and There are two legal parts of marriage in Judaism. One is called Kiddushin or betrothal and the second Nisuin or marriage. In ancient times, these were often done many months apart from each other. However, the custom for many centuries now has already been to do them right next to each other. The first part of the process, again called Kiddushin, goes as follows. The officiating rabbi makes a blessing over a cup of wine, and then the groom, using his right hand, places a solid metal ring on the bride's right pointer finger in front of two kosher witnesses, and he says the following phrase. Behold, you are betrothed to me with this ring in accordance with the laws of Moses and Israel. 
The witnesses have to watch him place the ring on her finger, and that's the process. The reason we make a blessing over a cup of wine, which is really common at almost all Jewish celebrations, is because unlike everything in the physical world, which deteriorates over time, wine, like wisdom and spirituality, actually improves over time. It becomes better with age. So at all spiritual moments, make a blessing over a cup of wine, which reflects this element of spirituality. The groom uses a ring that specifically has no gems on it or stones on it, because it has to be obvious to the witnesses and to the bride that he's giving something of value. And to properly evaluate any type of stone often requires an expert. So the custom is to use a pure piece of metal whose value is clearer. This completes the first part of the marriage. And to separate between the first part of the marriage, the Kedushin, and the second part of the marriage, the Nesuin, the custom is to read the Ksuba at this point. Again, the Ksuba is the marriage contract that was completed earlier at the groom's reception. And in it, the groom contractually accepts on himself to care for and love for his wife. After the Ksuba is read, we continue with the second part of the marriage. The Torah teaches us that God made man initially as one being, and he then separated the female from the male. Kabbalah understands from this that on a soul level, there is really only one soul. The male and female soul are part of one whole soul, and they were only separated in the physical world. So when a husband and wife get married, it's really a reconnecting of the joint soul that they've always shared together before entering separate bodies in this world. This powerful moment of reconnection of sewing these souls together and completing the person back to that one whole self takes place right now at this point, the second part of marriage. The Nisuin is accomplished by the bride and groom being under the chuppah together, and the process is that we make seven marriage-themed blessings in honor of the new couple under the chuppah canopy. Often various rabbis or relatives are honored with making these blessings, and whoever makes the blessings walks up and stands under the chuppah faces the new couple when making the blessings. After the final blessing is made, there's a custom to place a well-wrapped glass cup on the floor and for the groom to step on it and break it. The broken glass reminds us of the destruction of the temple and how even at moments of tremendous joy, we still remain incomplete without the deep relationship we have with God through the holy temple. This completes the chuppah ritual. And after the chuppah, we dance the bride and groom towards the yichud room, or literally the room of seclusion, in which the bride and groom spend their first moment as a married couple alone together in a private room before emerging and celebrating with everybody else. The bride and groom remain in there for about 10 minutes, and then they come out to join everyone else at the festive meal. The Talmud teaches us that one of the greatest mitzvahs is to celebrate and make a new bride and groom happy. The Talmud describes certain rabbis who would spend all of their days studying, but they would take a break for a wedding to go dance and celebrate with the bride and groom. So when the couple comes out and joins everyone in the main hall, there's a joyous celebratory dance in which the men dance with the groom, the woman with the bride, and there's often group dances and individual dances, very celebratory and happy as we attempt to gladden the hearts of the new bride and groom and celebrate this new marriage with them. After that, we sit down and have a festive meal in honor of the marriage. And when the meal is over, we bench. We say grace after meals. And if there is still a minion, a quorum of 10 adult Jewish males, we once again say the seven marriage-themed blessings, the Sheva Brachos, same ones that we said under the Chuppah. We say them again now at the end of benching. 
That basically wraps up the process of a traditional Jewish wedding. As always, if you have any questions or any other parts you're wondering about, you can always reach me at thethinkingjewpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody, have an amazing week. Thank you for listening to The Thinking Jew Podcast and for taking the time to study Torah and deepen your connection to Judaism. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topic requests for Rabbi Moshe, please email thethinkingjewpodcast at gmail.com or visit thethinkingjew.com.